It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Brandon Dickerson. I get to serve as the associate pastor here. And this morning, we're going to begin in Psalm 32. And so if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles there, kids, fifth grade and under, if you're checked in, thank you for being up here and worship with us. You can make your way downstairs. Parents, you're welcome to accompany them if you need to, but know that they'll be safe and they're going to have a great time down there. We're going to start in Psalm 32 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to grab one out of the seat back or open up your phone and, and pull out that Bible app. But you can also mark your place in John chapter 8 because in a little bit later we're going to be there, but we're going to start right here in Psalm 32. As we look at the giant of guilt and its very close counterpart, shame. A few weeks ago when Dave preached on grief, he briefly addressed guilt as one of the many faces of grief, as one of the many ways that it manifests itself in our lives. And in that context, we identified guilt as regret. We make statements like, I should have. I should have called the ambulance sooner. I should have done more. I should have been a better husband. All of these are statements of guilt, but in the sense of regret. They're the thoughts that cross our mind as we, as we second guess our past while looking towards a radically altered future. That's one definition of guilt. But this morning, we're going to be considering another definition as we look at this giant that all of us have to face in a fallen world. And in this sense, we will also consider shame because I don't think that we can rightly and appropriately reckon with guilt without also looking at shame. And so we're going to look at both pieces. But I want to start this morning by praying that God would give us clarity into these things. So let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. And as we open it up this morning, I, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us understanding of these giants that are in our life, these, all of these giants that we've been looking at through this series, but certainly this morning, because these are things that have the potential to weigh us down to the point that we are unable uh, to serve you effectively. And so my, my hope, my prayer um, for us is that as we look at these through your word, um, that we would be all the more encouraged and that we would be lifted up in order that we might serve you and, and might see uh, the truth of your word um, make its way in, in our homes, in our community, and around the world. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we know that David wrote many of the Psalms and that the Psalms span a great range of human emotion. There is a Psalm for everything that we feel within the human experience. And many times within even one or two Psalms, we see a great range of emotion. We see anger, we see doubt sadness and joy and fear, all of it is there. Everything that we can experience as human beings is contained within these 150 psalms that are contained within our Bibles. And we also know that David wrote many of these psalms and that he wrote many of them after uh, his sin with Bathsheba and the subsequent cover-up of that sin in the murder of her husband, one of his soldiers. Psalm 32 is, is one of those psalms that comes after that event in his life. David begins it this way. I guess if I'm going to tell you to open your Bible, I should also open mine. David begins Psalm 32 this way. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. 
When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And so the Psalms deal with human emotion. Then what is it that David is feeling here? Or at least, what was he feeling before he feels the relief of forgiveness as he expresses in verse 1? What is he describing as he says that his bones are wasting away through his groaning as God's hand is heavy on him and his strength is being sapped? Well, it makes it clear that this condition, that he's in this condition because he had been quiet about his transgression about his sin. And that what he was facing as a result of this sin and cover-up are the very giants that we are dealing with today, guilt and shame. In fact, sin is the very reason that these giants exist in the first place, as they arrived on the scene at the same time as sin, there in the garden with the first man and woman. You know this story, God creates Adam and Eve, he places them in the garden. He sets them apart from the rest of creation, breathing into only them the breath of life, giving only them dominion over the rest of creation, creating only them in his image. Everything was good. All of creation and humanity was living in in perfect harmony for the first two chapters of our Bible. We know that it didn't last very long. God had told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree in the garden except for one, but being deceived by the serpent, being deceived by Satan, they chose to rebel against God, to not trust God's words, and ultimately decided that they wanted to be their own gods. And so they did exactly what God told them not to do. And as a result, things happened exactly the way God said they would happen. Death entered the world. Sin and disobedience became the norm, and mankind's relationship with God is broken. We see this even today. We live in a Genesis 3 world today. And I briefly remind you of this account because within it and beyond it, we see the giants of guilt and shame enter, and it provides for us some important definitions that we need in order to deal with these. Genesis 2.25, before the fall, before the deception, records for us, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They didn't know the feeling that David expressed there in that psalm. They didn't know what it was to have done something that they shouldn't have done and they didn't know what it was to have to hide that from other people. They wouldn't have had anything for comparison to even begin to understand what guilt and shame were. And I want you to take a minute and try to imagine what it must be like to live that way. Over the years of your life, what it must be like to live a life where you are not sorry for anything that you've ever done. Where you don't regret one word that you ever said to another person. Where you don't regret anything that you've you've done to, to hurt other people. To live a life where there is no guilt and there is no shame. And of course we know that that changed because not one of us is exempt from these feelings today. All of us look back over the course of our lives and we all have things that we regret saying, that we regret doing, that we feel guilty for, that we are ashamed of. All of us do. And if you don't, I would argue that there's something wrong in your life. And so let's define them in order that we might understand what they truly are. I'll offer this definition first. 
that guilt is a state of being that is a result of breaking a law. Guilt is a state of being, a condition that is a result of breaking a law. It says, I did something bad. I did something that I should not have done. And I ask you to consider a man who murders another person in a back alley somewhere where there are no witnesses. And you can assume that this man has been able to live the rest of his life without being caught, or even you can assume that he was caught, went to trial, and was ultimately found not guilty. And the question I have is, is that man still guilty? Yes, he is still guilty because the moment that he murdered that other person, he broke the law, not only the civil law, but he broke God's law. At the very moment that he did it, he was stained with guilt. He may feel that guilt. He may feel regret for doing it. He may not. He may be found guilty by a jury of his peers. He may not. None of that changes the reality that he really did do it, that he committed the crime, and that now he is covered in guilt. It is his state of being. It is his condition, regardless of his feelings about it or whether he is discovered, tried, and convicted. Not only is he guilty, but he is deserving of the punishment for his crime, even if he never has to face that punishment while he's on the earth. And in the same way, the moment that that fruit of the tree touched the lips of Eve and then her husband Adam, they were stained with guilt. It was their condition. They had broken the one command, the one law that God had given them. It wouldn't have mattered if God had never addressed it with them. If he had looked the other way and pretended it never happened and they were able to live in the garden, which by the way isn't God's character and nature, but, it, but if God had looked the other way, it wouldn't have mattered. None of that would change the fact that they were guilty and that they were deserving of the consequences of that guilt. It was death. God had clearly said, if you do this, then you will die. David also, even if God had never sent Nathan in order to address his transgressions, was stained with guilt the moment that he went to bed with Bathsheba. He had broken the law. He was an adulterer. It was his state of being. And there in Psalm 32, he expresses the heaviness of that state. The reality that in his secrecy, he felt the punishment of his guilt closing in on him. That's how we define guilt. Shame, on the other hand, is closely related. In fact, I would argue that it arrives on the scene at almost the exact same time as guilt. And I'll give you this definition. Shame is a feeling associated with guilt that is relational. It's relational. One author writes, though guilt and shame are twins born in the garden only moments apart, they aren't identical. Guilt is usually tied to an event. I did something bad. Shame is tied to a person. I am bad. Guilt is the wound. Shame is the scar. Guilt is isolated to the individual. Shame is contagious. It's relational. It affects other people. It says, I'm bad, and they know it. I know it. They know it. Consider Adam and Eve's response to their guilt, to the fact that they had done this one thing that God had told them not to do. 
So remember, before their choice to disobey, they were naked. They felt no shame. But afterwards, in chapter 3, verse 9, God walks through the garden and he asks, where are you? And Adam's response in verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And I've shared before that, that to me, that is the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Genesis 3.10 is the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Why? Because it points us directly to what sin does to our relationship with God. And the very fact that we live in a Genesis 3 world today and that we are separated from God because of our sin, it began right there. Before, they were naked and they felt no shame. I'm afraid of you, and so I hid. The saddest verse in the Bible See, we don't sin apart from others. And our sin always has an effect on others. First and foremost, it affects our relationship with God. Adam and Eve were guilty of disobeying God's command, but it was their shame that caused them to hide from him when he came into the garden. It was shame that caused the woman to go and draw water from the well in the heat of the day instead of in the cool of the morning with the other Women. It was shame that kept the prodigal son away from his father in a distant land for as long as he was away. And it was shame that led David to hide his sin in the murder of Uriah and ultimately drove a wedge between him and God. And it leads him to write that his bones were wasting away as he, as he kept silent, that his strength was being sapped. And I think that that accurately describes how we feel at times so overcome by our guilt and shame that it seems we're wasting away, that we have no energy, no drive, no, no motivation to do anything. Guilt says you did something wrong and then shame takes you by the hand and says, that's why you have to come with me. That's why you have to hide. That's why you have to get away from God. That's why he doesn't want you anymore. Why pretend that he does? Why continue to try when God has already rejected you and there's nothing that you can do to be brought back into his good graces? And at the end of the day, these feelings are the reason that we so often associate guilt and shame in negative ways. But neither guilt nor shame are necessarily evil. In fact, guilt and shame can be helpful or harmful depending on how you use them. They can be helpful or harmful, depending on how you face them, how you reckon with them. They're harmful when they become a stumbling block to your relationship with God and with other people. I had a friend several years ago who was caught up in some really bad decisions that ultimately led to time in a jail cell, a significant amount of time, where he was, he was locked away. Before that, he, he had been to church, he'd accepted Jesus Christ, he'd been baptized, he was trying to live life a certain way, but that sin continued to pull him away. And when he got out of jail, he reached out to me in order to reconnect. And over lunch, he shared that he hadn't been back to church because of these past decisions that he had made. Shame was keeping him away. He didn't want people looking at him sideways. He didn't want people judging him. He felt that everybody knew everything that he had ever done. And so he found it easier to just not come. And of course, it wasn't easier because he was starving for godly connection. 
Shame was keeping him from being among other believers and keeping him from being away from where God was being worshipped, and it was killing him. Like David, he was wasting away. Guilt and shame are also harmful when they keep us in the same cycle of disobedience with seemingly no way out. Shame says, I've already messed up, I might as well do it again, or... I know that I'll eventually do it again, so I might as well do it now and make things easier. Or even, I'm not worth the effort of getting myself out of this. And over and over again, we fall back into it. It's a never-ending cycle of sin that leads to shame and shame that leads to sin. And we're, we're caught with no way out, no seemingly way out. And those are the situations when guilt and shame are harmful for us. And I think that we've all been there in some capacity. But unlike my friend or unlike those who get caught in this cycle, David took that guilt and shame and he realized that they could be used to draw him back to God. Remember how he began the psalm, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. This wasn't a psalm of lament. It wasn't a psalm of sadness. It was a psalm of blessing and joy. What made the difference for David? Well, look at verse 5. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Ultimately, David is saying, yes, I am guilty, and, and I'm ashamed of what I did, but I won't be ruled by this guilt and shame. I will draw all the nearer to God, and he will rescue me from these giants. In fact, only God can rescue us from the giant of the guilt of our sin because that sin has been committed against God. And that's the reality that David ultimately comes to terms with and it drove him towards God rather than away from him. Paul gives us similar insight in his second letter to the Corinthians. In his first letter, he had written to the church to deal with some very specific and egregious sins among other things. He wrote to them about their pride and their, their arrogance, sexual immorality, including a, a case of incest within the church, disputes between believers that were leading to lawsuits that were happening in front of unbelievers and threatening the unity of the church. These are all things that had to be taken very seriously because they were hindering the ability of that church to be an effective witness for Christ. They were getting in their way of showing the world what it means to be a Christ follower. And so Paul doesn't pull any punches in his letter. He had some really difficult things to say to them, things that would have been challenging for them to hear, things that probably made some or many of them angry and indignant. And then in his second letter, he explains why he had to do this. Chapter 7, verse 8, he writes... Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. And by sorrow, Paul means those feelings of guilt and shame. He needed to point out their sin and to tell them that it was wrong because they weren't even feeling guilty about what they had been doing. And they certainly couldn't see that they were bringing shame on themselves and on the church for their behavior. And so Paul wrote them in such a way that they would see their guilt and be ashamed of that behavior. And he gives us the reasoning as he continues in verse 8. He says, Though I did regret it, I see that my letters hurt you, but only for a little while. 
Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, not because you were made guilty, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way. You were made to feel guilty and ashamed as God intended. That God is using it for you. The words that Paul wrote to them and the feelings that those words evoked inside of them were meant to lead them towards repentance. That is the godly purpose of these giants of guilt and shame, to lead you and me to a turning from our sin and to a returning to God. And then Paul summarizes this way. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, to eternal life. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This one sentence espouses our two options for dealing with guilt and shame. He says there's a worldly way that leads to eternal death. Or there's another way. A godly sorrow, guilt, that leads to salvation, to eternal life, and leaves no regret, no shame. It's guilt that leads to repentance and a turning towards God, coming to the realization that David came to, that only God can absolve us from sin against God. Only He can take away that stain of guilt and change our state of being, change our condition from guilty to non-guilty. God is the only one who can do that. And in John chapter 8, if you'll go ahead and turn over there in your Bibles, we see a picture of how God does this. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now let's understand that this woman was in fact guilty. She had been caught in the act of committing adultery, which, according to the law, was punishable by death. And I'm sure that her worst fear had come true, that she had been caught in her sin, that she had been dragged out in front of a group of people, that she was being shamed in front of this group of people, and that ultimately she would be executed. But I want you to also realize that these Pharisees, these keepers of the law, are not bringing this woman because they have regard for the law. That is not their purpose. They are not doing it to honor the law. Because where they are drawing that law from is Deuteronomy 22.22, which says, If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. What's missing from the scenario? The man is missing. They have caught this woman in the act. They've drug her out. They've left him where he is. And so they have no regard for the law. Their purpose only is to trap Jesus. To rope him into making a decision between 
obeying the law or seeing this woman executed. They wanted to force him to make a choice so that they could accuse him either way. And what we learn about Jesus over and over again as the Pharisees continue to try this same thing over and over again is that he will not be trapped. He will not be led into the games that they're playing to try to get him to a point where they can arrest him. Verse 6 says that Jesus didn't immediately say anything. He just bent down and began writing something on the ground with his finger. And, there, and there's been a lot of speculation about what Jesus bent down to write. Everything is a guess. We, we can't know what Jesus wrote because we're not told what Jesus wrote. But I like to think that he began writing a record of the times that these men by name had, had sinned against God themselves. That, again, that's a guess. The Bible doesn't say that. But at any rate, he, he writes some and then he stands up and he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, nobody, nobody with the exception of Jesus himself is innocent. Nobody is free from that stain of guilt. Nobody is outside of this condition, this state of being. And he's saying, if you claim that this woman deserves to die for what she has done, then you must also admit that you are guilty of breaking God's commands, of breaking his laws and deserving of death. Verse 9 says that one by one, the man began to drop their stones and walk away until only Jesus and the woman are left. And then Jesus looks at her and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And he declares, then neither do I condemn you. And with these words, Jesus gives this woman and you and me the weapon to use against these giants. The weapon against guilt and shame is God's grace given through Jesus Christ. Jesus had established in Matthew chapter 9 that he had been given authority by his father to forgive sins. Had this woman sinned? Yes. By the letter of the law, was she deserving of death? Yes. But Jesus looks her in the eye with the full authority and backing of the father who wrote the law and says that her guilt has been removed that she is not condemned, that on this day she was not going to die. And imagine for a moment what it must have felt like for this woman, walking away with the, the assurance that the stain of her guilt was gone. So I imagine that if even for a brief moment she felt like Adam and Eve there in Genesis 2.25, that Jesus had looked at her, saw everything that she had ever done. She stood before him completely exposed and she felt no shame because it had been taken away. It had been removed from her. See, God's grace goes further than just removing our guilt. It clears our consciences and it takes away that shame. It pulls us out of that cycle that tries to keep us bound the author of Hebrews, in comparing the insufficient sacrifices of bulls and goats to the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, writes, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those 
who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will it cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The sacrificial law cleaned the outside. I've come to clean the inside. To clean out the inside of the cup, so to speak. To wipe away your your conscience. The full cleansing from the state of guilt should lead to a clear conscience so that we no longer have to walk around with the shame of what we've done. Hiding from God and distancing ourselves from others who have also been made clean in this way. But I want you to notice something in Jesus' words to this woman that we also see here in in Hebrews. Jesus' forgiveness of the woman wasn't an approval of her sin. It wasn't an approval of her way of life, the way that she had been living. She ends the conversation not with, neither do I condemn you, which is, is very important. But he ends with, go now and leave your life of sin The invitation was not for her to keep on doing what she had been doing, but to live differently, to repent and live a life that would be honoring to Similarly, in the passage from Hebrews that we just read, the author says that our consciences have been clean, that we are free from guilt and shame. Why? so that we may serve the living God. So that we may serve the living God. It's the final truth for us today, that freedom from the guilt of past sin should lead us towards future obedience. Paul has very strong warnings against using our freedom from these giants as a license to continue living a life that is not pleasing to God. Scripture is very clear. Do not use God's grace through Jesus as an excuse for sin, but let God's grace through Jesus be the motivator for a godly life lived in obedience to what God wants. And it is a strong motivator. Indeed, it is the only motivator that is truly effective against the choices that would be displeasing to God. But grace goes beyond simply just a motivation to not sin. It gives us what we need to serve the living God, as Hebrews says. That because I have been freed from sin, because I no longer walk around with the giants of guilt and shame weighing heavily on me and and sapping my strength, as David wrote, because of these things, I am free to do the things that God has called me to do while I am here. Listen, the church is entirely made up of the guilty. Every one of us are guilty. Every single one of us in here, like that woman that was brought to Jesus, stand condemned for our sin, and we deserve the consequences of that sin. But if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then just like her, he has looked you in the eye and he said, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Devote yourself to serving the living God. Use your freedom to help set others free. That once we get out of the prison, our responsibility is to continue speaking to those who are still in prison and to use the freedom that we've been given, our our clean consciences, to lead them towards 
the living God. Don't be oppressed by guilt. Don't be led into hiding by shame. But let your light shine that others might see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The Father who rescued you from the punishment you deserve and desires to rescue all of those who come to him in obedience and submission. Serve God out of the freedom that you have received because it is by the goodness of God that you have received freedom. That you have been set free. And if you've not yet received that freedom, then you don't know what it is yet to truly live in it. You may not even realize the oppression that guilt and shame have on your life and how God can use them to draw you to repentance, to draw you to him that you might discover and serve the living God. So my invitation to you, if you've not yet experienced that, is to come, to taste, to see for yourself what God has done as we sing this song about God's goodness. Let's stand up and let's pray together. Father, you are good. In its purest form, you are good. And Lord, we thank you that it's in your goodness and your, in your mercy that we have been set free. And now you've called us to live a life in that freedom, to leave our lives of disobedience, to set our eyes on you, to go and proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim the freedom that we have to those who are still in chains, that we might see people come to repentance and accept salvation that's been given in Jesus Christ. And Father, if there are any of those in this room this morning, I pray that they have received a taste of what that freedom can be like and that you would draw them to you. Salvation is yours, Lord. And I thank you for that. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.